Well, good morning, church. Mike, I have to say that was very impressive for just having your wisdom teeth out the other day. Uh, I don't think I would have been able to get up in front of a congregation and pray after uh, I had mine done before. I will give you one word of wisdom since you remarked that some of yours was taken with your teeth. Do not let any cold water get back there. Oh my, I had that happen when I had my wisdom teeth out, and that was probably one of the most horrible feelings I've ever experienced. I hit the floor in the kitchen really hard, so be, be careful with that. But thank you for praying for us. Thank you, team, for leading us in the music ministry today. We're continuing to work through the book of Exodus. What a beautiful morning. The spring is here. The flowers are blooming. On my morning walks, I go under some of the trees in the community that have blossoms on them. And when I get near them, how about that smell? You smell the beautiful flowers on the trees, and it just brings a smile to your face. God is so good uh, and so glorious, and he has placed us right in the midst of a beautiful world and creation that he has created. Exodus 29, verse 46. Let's say it together. It's our memory verse for the month of April. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Exodus 29, 46. Very good. He is still today dwelling among us. And we are moving in our study of the book of Exodus into a portion that is known as the judgment or the ordinances. Big words. This is uh, following the Ten Commandments that God had given his nation, the commandments that were the foundation or the bedrock on which the rest of the law would be established. In chapters 21 through 24, which we're in this week, God is going to begin to show us how those commands might be worked out within the community that he is establishing, the practical way that they might be lived and executed among the people. And while he does this, we are catching a glimpse of what God values or prioritizes as he builds and establishes what is going to become the Israelite nation. They were to function as a kingdom of priests, and as such, a kingdom set apart, operating much differently from the other nations that were in the world. And so we know that over time, as God gave his law and his commands to the people, that there was a set of around 613 total commands that were given. In these chapters we're going to look at today, 42 of those commands uh, come to life. And unfortunately, we know that what happened over the years and what still sometimes happens today is that the people took the law and they continued to pile on and multiply and place on top of it their own commands and burden and weigh down the people. And so we needed Jesus. We needed Jesus to come and to summarize the law, what it said, what it meant, its intent. And he came and he gave us a summation. So why not just stop here? Why not just stop with these two commands? Why would we still come back as a church today and read and rehearse and study together chapters like Exodus 21 to 24 if Jesus has already summarized them so well for us? 
And one reason we might do this is so that we can practically see how Jesus' summary of the law was applied within the nation and used on a day-to-day basis. In other words, is there something in our text today that might help us more clearly understand how we can better love God and love others? And indeed, I think as we spend time together this morning in these words, we will discover that there are some helpful reflections and reminders here for us in these portions of the law. Another reason that we turn and we rehearse and we look at these texts together is because they aid in helping us to remember that the way that we live, the way that we live is part and parcel of the way that we worship. They're together. As followers of Jesus, children of God also adopted and named as a kingdom of priests, we are to remember that everything we do is to be for the glory of God, to worship and to magnify his name. And it's hard to give glory to God if we're not familiar with the patterns and the behaviors that are glorifying to him. When our communities strive and when we are loving one another as God desires and intends, it is not we the people that are ultimately honored, but rather God as we give him glory and honor for rightly guiding and ordering the formation of our communities through Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and his word. Now, we are not going to be able to cover in detail today all 42 of the judgments, and all of you should be thankful for that because we, we would be here a very, very long time, and that's not how it works. Instead, in our corporate investigation of these texts today, we're going to make some observations summarizing their contents. We must also ask of our text this morning to reveal something to us about Yahweh, our righteous and just lawgiver. What does God cherish? And how does he desire a community committed to righteousness and justice to function and to be formed? And then finally, do the contents of these chapters hold some clues or keys for our flourishing in this wilderness as we gather as a church today. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 21 today. You can take your Bibles and turn there or turn them on. And before we read verses 1 to 11, let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, indeed, we are so thankful for your word today. We have it as a guide. You have given us 66 wonderfully powerful and motivating books to study, to read, to reflect on, to rehearse together, to celebrate, and also importantly, Lord, to live out in our day-to-day lives. Sometimes, Father, as I approach texts like these in my own heart, it's hard for me to understand how to use something from so long ago in my life right now today. But God, we know that your Holy Spirit works through every single word in these pages. And so we're trusting in our time of study today that he is going to apply to each and every one of us what we need in our time together, that we are going to be able to learn something about you, learn something about the things that you prioritize, the things that 
you care about in the formation of our communities and in the formation of ourselves as individuals. And then, Father, let us take that knowledge and, and let us not just hold it in our hearts and minds, but let it be something that flows out of our hands, flows out of our mouths as we go back into our communities this week. Uh, might we be transformed into the person of Jesus, the person that you want us all to look like and that you want our communities to look like as well. Help us to do that. We need your spirit to guide us. As we study today, we want to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. Now these are the rules. Rules. We love rules, don't we? Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. <clears throat> he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. One of the reasons that we need to rehearse and refresh our minds with the words of these texts is that by our very nature, we are not very good at just naturally loving and treating one another well. It doesn't come easy to us. There was in the ancient Near East, and there continues still today, slavery, the buying, the selling, the trafficking of humans for economic or financial satisfaction or restitution. And this is one clear reality or one clear evidence that we still have not figured out how to love and treat one another well. What is also very necessary for us to keep in mind is that the way things currently are today or were then are not the way that things are going to be in the kingdom of God. Slavery and oppression in any form is evidence of sin's effect and consequence in this world. Now we might also consider and capture the great irony that's involved here with the original audience to who these words were given. Who were the Hebrew people? They were slaves. While in Egypt, the Hebrew and the Israelite people had just endured hundreds of years of enslavement themselves. 
And here in a document that in many ways parallels a nation's Bill of Rights, God begins by addressing the rights of those who were in slavery or servitude. And friends, it's hard, and we have to, we have to pause here as American Christians, because when we approach text in the Bible regarding slavery, we must remove the cultural lenses of our nation's history. The race-based slavery that is woven into the fabric and the formation and the building and the maintaining of our nation is unbiblical and abhorrent to God. In fact, in this very same chapter, God gives clear instruction for the type of slavery that stains the history of our nation. Exodus 21, 16 is on the screen. The actual Hebrew word here translated in our English as kidnap, the Hebrew word literally meant man-stealing. And it was used for someone who would go into a foreign land and take someone that did not belong to them off that land and sell them or hold them in bondage against their will. And this is exactly how people of African heritage were brought to the Americas. And it is exactly how they were treated for hundreds of years throughout our land. And if these realities make us cringe or feel uncomfortable, I think that is a proper emotion when faced with this kind of grievous and hateful injustice. So the first job as American Christians that we have when approaching these passages is to understand that there is absolutely no biblical justification that would allow for the kind of slavery that marks our nation's past. This kind of human treatment is very much hated and despised by God. And once we remove our cultural lenses related to slavery, our next assignment then might be to pick up on the following questions. First, what circumstances or situations would have been present in that time that might have led a person into a life of enslavement or servitude? Second, why would God make space in his law for someone who bought, owned, managed, or sold servants or slaves? And then finally, how might these laws related to servitude set Israel apart from the other nations? We want to take a moment to address each one of those questions and give some response or insight into them. First, scholars have identified several reasons why somebody in the ancient Near East might have found themselves enslaved. And they're on the screen. One would be extreme poverty. Another, that they might have been sold by their father, as we saw in verses 7 to 11. There was insolvency back then. A criminal, they could have been taken as a prisoner of war. Or you see in the sixth one, a Hebrew could have been ransomed from a Gentile. And they might have found themselves sold to another Hebrew. So keeping those reasons in mind, why would God make space in his law for someone who bought, owned, managed, or sold servants and slaves? A few observations in our text this morning. Notice here that in verses 1 through 11, 
God is only speaking in this part of his law to the buying and selling of servants who were also Hebrews. Next, we observe that God is interested or concerned, very concerned, with the righteous and just treatment of those who found themselves in this sort of bondage. And then a final observation that we might make this morning is that God ultimately provides for the liberation or freedom of those Hebrews who were held in servitude or slavery by other Hebrews. And this, this provision in the text is the exact part of this law that set this one apart from every other ancient Near Eastern law or code in the ancient world. And so how would these laws related to servants set Israel apart from every other nation? There was opportunity for full liberation. Liberation, human rights, and righteousness and the just treatment of the Hebrew people was not on the mind of the Egyptians. It was not on their minds. They were not concerned with that. We saw it over and over and over again as we read earlier in the book of Exodus. The Egyptian people were concerned with enslaving and keeping enslaved the people who were Hebrews. And if slavery is to exist in this world, and it does, it must not be practiced in the same way as nations or people groups who did not identify with or relate to the one true living God. So, as the text indicates, on the seventh year, the servant or the slave was to be set free and their debts were to be cleared. This is incredible. It's unique to this nation and this people. If a person had entered servitude with a wife, they were to leave with their wife. If the master had provided a servant with a wife and they bore children together, then the servant could still leave after seven years, but he could also determine if he desired to stay with his family and the master would have to grant his request to stay. There was to be no forced separation of families. There was to be given an opportunity for complete freedom and redemption at the end of six years. The servant's body, his will, his voice, they were valued, they were important, and they were to be treated with love and compassion. And the master was to take care in communing with his servant in a way that dignified them, loved them, and honored them as another person created in the image of God. God even establishes a code of justice and righteousness for a daughter who may have been sold by their father. This is what's included in verses 7 through 11. And, and friends, this is hard for us to fathom. We can't imagine this. To put ourselves in a situation where poverty, extreme poverty or extreme economic conditions or something so terrible would happen in a person's life that they'd have to get to a point where they'd sell their own daughter into servitude or slavery. Imagine. 
Now, the difficulty here in these verses is unlike the male servants, the daughters sold into slavery, they were not granted the opportunity for freedom after their service. However, redemption was to remain a possibility if the daughter was not to meet the expectations of her master. And her master was given prohibitions on how he was to treat her as well. He had no authority to sell her to a foreigner or someone outside of the Hebrew people. And if he determined to give her to one of his sons in marriage, then he had to pay her father a proper dowry for her marriage, and he had to treat her as one of his own daughters. And were the master to fail to provide adequate security or food or clothing, she was able to go free without payment of any money for the years of servitude that she did not complete. In other words, according to the law given in Exodus 21, the master was to look on the circumstance of his servant with empathy, to treat her with dignity, compassion, and honor while she was in service to him. God begins with slavery. Slavery is a condition of life that his people would have been very well acquainted with. Not only had they been servant and slaves in Egypt, but while they were there, existing in that condition, they actually took on servants and slaves of their own. God is concerned with the love and the care and the good treatment of the most vulnerable among us. And the Hebrew people were not to treat slaves or servants with the same contemptuous behaviors that they themselves had been treated with. You remember, you remember Pharaoh, right? Remember what he said whenever, whenever the Hebrew people became an annoyance to him. What did he do? He treated them worse and worse and worse, with more contempt and more contempt and more contempt. This was not to be the way the Hebrews were to be forming as a nation. When we abuse, misuse, or mistreat one another, whether it's taking advantage of one another, favoring one group over another, we are failing to worship and relate to God as he desires for us to worship and relate to him. And so there are a number of other judgments that continue that we're going to outline today. Judgments related to injuries, related to personal property. And what we find through the rest of chapter 21 and the middle of chapter 22 is that God is prioritizing the protection, the upholding, and the preservation of life. Life is valuable to God. And all life we are to consider as valuable. And if there is intentional or accidental injury or the taking of another life, it was to be met with certain forms of consequence. We see a concern for life at every stage. Life inside the womb, life outside the womb. The young, the old, the orphan, the widow. There's a few verses that encompass these ideals. They're found in Exodus chapter 21. 22 to 25, I want to read them. If men fight and hit a pregnant woman and her child is born prematurely, 
but there is no serious injury. The one who hit her will surely be punished in accordance with what the woman's husband demands of him. And he will pay what the court decides. But if there is serious injury, either to the woman or the infant, I would add, then you will give a life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. The ideal here we have said and celebrated frequently from the stage and pulpit, all life is sacred and matters to God. Early, middle, and late. Unborn, already born. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus himself, he said, I am the resurrection and the what? And the what? Life. Yes. And as such, his followers, his children, we should love and celebrate and seek to fully live into the abundant life that he has given to us. As God is forming his nation and drawing together his people today, we are being formed as a people who are to celebrate and prioritize the flourishing of human life because this magnifies and brings glory to the name of our creator, God. So the laws continue to impact themselves. Chapter 22, 16 to 31, we have moral and ceremonial judgments. In chapter 23, 1 to 9, we have ordinances related generally to justice in a community. And in chapter 23, verses 10 to 19, there are commands related to the Sabbath and to various feasts that are taking on. All of this forms what becomes known. This entire section would later become known and is even mentioned here as the book of the covenant. And as it continues to unfold, we're brought into several commands and prohibitions that are guiding the community towards a right way of living and pursuing justice together. So let's start with a few observations from each of these sections. First, for the moral and ceremonial laws. What we find is that the, the maintenance and the institution and purity of marriage was to be prioritized among the people. We also find that purity of religious practice, avoidance of syncretism, or the blending of religions was also to be avoided. We have some of that in our culture and our world today sometimes. And, and I think it's sad, but it, it does happen. A number of years ago, I, I was working with a student who was struggling uh, with, he was trying to blend Christianity with Buddhism, and it, it simply wasn't working. And I remember saying to him, it's because they're not congruent. They don't work. You can't syncretize religion. They don't fit together. Jesus said, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say me plus, plus, plus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Yes. So the syncretism still in some ways is being attempted uh, in various places throughout the world today. That was something that was supposed to be avoided uh, in the Jewish world, in the Jewish culture. It's something that needs to be avoided and called out and addressed when it takes place in the church today. But what we find in these laws is that there was also supposed to be a protection of human rights. This is where we find the most vulnerable discussed in the laws. 
This is where God talks about care of the foreigner. And he even says to the uh, Israelites that you yourselves should understand this because you were once foreigners yourselves in Egypt. So the foreigner or the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, the poor, they are to be cared for. There are to be provisions for them within our communities. And the priority of worship is to be given to God alone. And we know his name as he communicated it to his people, Yahweh. And that's verses 29 to 31. As we continue, the beginning of chapter 23 moves us towards some general principles that were related to the nation forming as a community that pursues justice. Now, a lot is being done with this word in our culture today. And I just want to pause here and say when we talk about justice in the church, we are talking about justice as it is communicated in the Bible. That's how we are talking about it. Old Testament and New Testament, all of it is important, beginning to end. And in, Gen- in Exodus 23, verses 1 to 9, some of the general principles related to justice that we see is honesty is important. Yes? Yes. If we're forming as a just community, as people that love and care well for one another, it's pretty important that we're honest with one another. Yes? Yes, absolutely. Truth, honesty, telling the truth, being uh, someone that's, that's with integrity. These are important things. Equity is also important. There's provisions for how to treat people who lived differently, how to treat your enemy. If something happened to them, you were not just simply to walk past and say, well, they're getting what they deserve. That wasn't the way that the people were to live. If an enemy's donkey was in trouble or their mule was in trouble and something was wrong with it and you were present and able to help in some way and you ignored that, that was not what God desired for his people. Equity was important as well as fairness. Not fairness as the world defines it, fairness as God himself defines it. And so when the people were living this way and formed in this way and they were committed to justice and righteousness and the flourishing of their community, God was being glorified because they looked different than the rest of the world. When we live this way, we are going to look set apart from the rest of the world that does not value these things does not live according to these ways, does not care about the kind of fruit that it produces. The church needs to look different, just like the nation of Israel was to look different. And so when the people gathered and practiced the Sabbath, as we'll see in the next section of chapter 23 here, uh, they began to participate in festivals and feasts. Care was to be given for all who might find themselves present. Now, I think what's very interesting is if we jump forward into the New Testament, we actually can see Paul picking up on these ideals throughout his letters that were written to the early churches while they were being formed and established throughout the ancient world. Some of the principles that we see here in verses 10 to 19 of chapter 23 can be paralleled with the way that the church is to practice and participate in ordinances such as the Lord's Supper, what we call today communion. And so here's a few. As it pertained to the feasts and the Sabbath, the poor 
were to share in the harvest. They were not to be left out. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 23. Rest was to be provided for all, including the servants among them. Verse 12. God alone was to be worshipped. Verse 13. Gratitude and generosity were to be characterized in the gatherings and the celebrations. Gratitude and generosity. Wonderful attributes of a Christian community today. Verses 14 to 17. And importantly, in verses 18 and 19, very importantly, because Paul addresses this with the Corinthian church as well. Proper worship was to be maintained, taught, and practice. This wasn't just get together willy-nilly and do whatever you want. It's okay. No, there was a way that God desired for people to come together and a way for God desired, uh, a way that God desired to be worshipped. And that was to be taught, maintained, and practiced. Now, I, can we just pause here and remember this, this is what's being given to Moses and the leaders of a people group who are not quite yet a nation. They're about to become one. We're going to flip to chapter 24 here in a bit, and then boom, Israel is born. But imagine the task that was before Moses and the other leaders. Think about all the stuff they had on their mind. Daily provision. Here we have thousands, hundreds of thousands of people Daily provision, where's food, where's water, daily direction, where are we going? Right? They're wondering in the wilderness. People were probably asking regularly, just like the kids do, what's next? What's next? What are we going to do then? What are we going to do then? What are we going to do then? No. (laughs) I wonder if Moses had a rule, no schedule questions. A lot, of, a, lot, a lot of Christian youth groups and camps have to have that rule. No schedule questions. But Moses and the leaders, they, they had to be concerned about ordering a society. How do we come together? Think about it. There is no law among the people. God's given it right here. But how do we get it established? And then once it's established and the people hear it and begin to know it, how do we even go about the work of enforcing it? I mean, that this task is monumental. We have to set up proper worship, a tabernacle, someplace where we can come and make sacrifice. We have to organize an army and a national defense. We have to figure out some form of economy that's suitable for the situation and circumstances that we're in. Something that can sustain us, how we're going to buy and sell and trade. What's that going to look like? How are we going to care for the sick? And the dying among us. And what about all the disputes? He stole my goat. What do we do with that? Who manages that? Who goes about it? I mean, this was an app. If we think about it, this is Moses and some of his elders. And this was the task that they were burdened with. And guess what? They were not alone. Amen? They were not alone. God was with them. And in the midst of all of this, I believe that God realized how heavy this must have been. 
Because right here in chapter 23, in the midst of the giving of all of these 42 ordinances, we come across an angel of presence. Now I want to read this. We're going to read verses 20 to 26 and verses 30 to 33 if you want to follow along. Chapter 23. This is God speaking to Moses. I'm going to send an angel before you to protect you as you journey and to bring you into the place that I've prepared. Take heed because of him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. But if you diligently obey him and do all that I command, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and I will be an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I will destroy them completely. Now look at verse 24. This is reiterating what we saw in the Ten Commands and even in these ordinances. You must not bow down to their gods. You must not serve them or do according to their practices. Instead, you must completely overthrow them and smash their standing stones to pieces. You must serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will remove sickness from your midst. No woman will miscarry her young or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Skip down to verse 30. I love this. Watch this. Little by little. Little by little. Hold on to that. Little by little. I will drive them out before you until you become fruitful and inherit the land. I will set your boundaries from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the desert to the river. I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. You will drive them out. I will drive them out before you. You must make no covenant with them or with their gods. They must not live in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. In their formation as a nation, in their adoption of these commands and prohibition and laws, God was going to be with them in a supernatural way. Many scholars who have studied this text in depth believe that this was the angel of the Lord whose presence is clearly depicted later in Joshua's narrative. The account is on the screen, the commander of the Lord's army. Some have also identified this as evidence of Jesus' presence with the people, both in the wilderness and in the earliest physical spaces that they inhabited. The presence of this angel and the earliest formation of the Israelite nation remind us that God's work in formation is often, as it states in verse 30, little by little. As I was studying this week, I came across this quote from biblical scholar and theologian F.B. Meyer, and he said this, quote, little by little, God does the work. Little by little does the work of God proceed through the individual soul. Little by little do the conquest of the cross win over the world. Little by little is the unfolding purpose of redemption made manifest 
to men and angels, end quote. In the angel of presence, we're reminded that the formation of God's people is not a sprint. Man, do I love a sprint. (laughs) I'm a sprinting coach in track. I just love the sprints. 100 meter, 200 meter, 400 meter, you just do it and it's over and it's quick. 400 meters like like slamming your hand in a car door, but you get over it, you know, eventually. It's just okay. But man, and and, then I just want... You know, in my life so much, you just want to, to live like it's a sprint. And you just want to see those wins short term. And you just, sometimes you get bogged down. And sometimes it just feels like, oh man, what are you doing, God? What is going on? And we have to remind ourselves that it's not big by big, usually. Sometimes it is, right? Sometimes it, some, God does something amazingly incredible and supernatural, and it's big by big. But really, it's a marathon, right? And at the end, I mean, you just take, sometimes it's just getting up and taking that next step. That's all I can do. There are moments where literally the day that we're in, it is surviving moment by moment. And in those days, can we hold on to verse 30 of chapter 23 and remember, it's little by little. A few weeks ago, Matt preached from his pulpit and something that he was talking about during missions conference. It just really has hung with me the last few weeks. God, he wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in all the big, boisterous, colorful things going around. He was in the what? Whisper. but sometimes we just can't get quiet enough to listen for it. Just settle down enough and listen. We are in this process of formation, church. Here, we are being formed in the image of Jesus. None of us are there yet. Well, if one of you want to say that you are, I'd love to meet with you after the service and take some notes. But that's that's the end goal. We're not going to get there until we're with him. We're reminded that we're never alone in it. God's presence is with us in each step, in each whisper, in each breath. And as we walk in obedience and faithfulness, he is faithful in and through us to carry us on, strengthening us and motivating us for both the quiet and the stormy waters of our lives. Man, sometimes we have quiet waters. That's nice. I like that. That hasn't been the story of my life the last number of years. (laughs) But it has been the story of some seasons in my life. It has been. I've had seasons of quiet waters. But not always. Sometimes it's stormy. And the waters are tumultuous. And I'm remembering that God was right there in the boat. Jesus was right there with the disciples. He was right there in the wilderness with the nation. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And watch what he does in the midst of all of this drama that's going on. The the unfolding of a people just coming out of Egypt and through the waters and in the wilderness and already having a, a war and all these things happening. In the midst of all of it, he births a nation. That's what chapter 24 is in Exodus. It's the birth. We're watching the birth of a nation. Look at chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people, 
all the Lord's words and all the decisions, all of the people answered together. We are willing to do all the words that the Lord has said. (laughs) Willing, but yeah. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Early in the morning, he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and arranged 12 standing stones according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls for peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood, put it in bowls, half the blood, splashed it on the altar. He took the book of the covenant and read it out loud to the people. And they said again, we are willing to do and obey all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses took the blood and he splashed it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments that I have written so that you may teach them. So Moses set out with Joshua, his attendant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. He told the elders, wait for us in this place until we return to you. Here are Aaron and Hur with you. Whoever has any matters of dispute can approach them. So Moses went up the mountain And a cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord resided on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from within the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in plain view of the people. Moses went into the cloud when he went up the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the climax of the book of Exodus, chapter 24. It is quite literally the image we are given of the birth of the Israelite people, the Israelite nation. It is here and now where we can move from referring to them as the Hebrew people to the newborn nation of Israel. God has done the work. And he has done so by calling and freeing a people group that were held against all hope in bondage. He rescued them. He brought them through the waters into the wilderness. He conquered their opposition in the wilderness. He provided them with water from a rock and food and manna to sustain them. He gave them the glory of his light and the hope of his presence with them. He led them. He spoke to them. He revealed to them his very heart. He gave them a law. He established them by instructing them on how to worship him alone. And he guided them on how he desired to be worshipped. He directed and commanded and made provisions for how they were to love and how they were to live in community with one another. He enters into a covenant with them. They are sprinkled and covered in the blood of a sacrificial animal. God desires to see his people flourish in the land that he will soon give them. He calls leaders. He assigns them. He confirms them through Moses. His desire is to dwell with his holy people, his kingdom of priests, his children, in a kingdom that is committed to righteousness 
and justice. And this kingdom will thrive and flourish when it embodies and practices the worship of God alone as demonstrated in the habits and practices and behaviors of loving Him well and loving each other well. And church, perhaps for today, as our team comes to close us, we can remember that one day, one day, we will dwell in a kingdom much like this, but we will dwell in it in its fullest, thrilling, and most beautiful sense. But until then, as the church, why not practice like we are living in it right here, right now, and every day that he gives us on earth? To me, it would seem to be an incredible way for us as a community to shine as light and to have effect as salt in the world that God has planted us in if we're committed to gathering, forming, and being together with the same priorities that He has. Love, justice, and righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the law. We know that it was powerless to save us. We know that it revealed to us our inability to save ourselves. We know that it proved the depth of our own sinfulness. Yet, Lord, it was needed for those reasons. And we know that you sent your son Jesus and he was perfect to fulfill it, to fill up every single last command and to fill it up perfectly, wholly, completely. He was the sacrifice, the blood that atoned and covered for our sin. Where we failed, he did not. Where we were powerless, he was more than powerful. Where we had been conquered, he was a conqueror. And where we had found bondage, he held the keys to set us free, destroying sin and death when he rose from the dead. That was your work within him, God. And we give you the glory and the honor for that. And we pray that as we form together as communities of believers today, that we would do so in a way that honors you, that holds up the ideals that you have for your communities, that prioritizes the things that you prioritize, and that produces the fruit of your spirit, and that in some way you would work through it, that we might have effect as salt and light in these communities, that your gospel might go forth, and that people who do not yet know you would be transformed by its power alive and active, within each and every one of us. And might you be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.